Welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Pazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we're back with number 28 on AFI's top 100 list of films, 1950s, All About Eve. All About Eve. Had you ever seen this film before? No. Had you heard of this film before? No, I had not somehow. Neither have I, but a lot of it feels familiar. Yes. It, yes. So maybe to talk more about that, I think it'd be useful first to get a plot synopsis. All right. This is yet again a very sort of plot-driven film, so I have not gone into the detailed intricacies of each little vignette, but but this should give us the the main gist. And you'll, I mean, as per usual, you'll uh, correct me here. So, <laughs> uh, so here we go. All About Eve is the story of a group of theater people in the early 1950s. The main conflict of this film is between Eve Harrington and Margot Channing. Margot is an aging but wildly successful actress of the stage who meets adoring fan Eve through her friend Karen. Eve tells a sentimental sob story about how she has come to New York from Wisconsin by way of California, and after her introduction, she becomes Margot's assistant, supplanting her maid, Bertie. Margot becomes increasingly wary of Eve as she forces her way into Margot's life, eventually masterminding a scheme in which she becomes Margot's understudy. Karen, manipulated by Eve, forces Margot to miss a performance where she is replaced by Eve, who invites a large number of theater critics, including the sharp-tongued Addison DeWitt, to see the show. Eve attempts to break Karen's and Margot's relationships, but does so unsuccessfully. Addison sees through Eve's act and eventually claims her as his own, blackmailing her with the true knowledge of her rise and her backstory. After Eve receives the prestigious Sarah Siddons Award, essentially stealing it from Margot in many ways, she returns home to discover a young fan who has snuck into her apartment. The fan, like Eve did to Margot, has dreams of supplanting her, and the film ends with the fan wearing Eve's beautiful overcoat cape and holding her award in front of a multifaceted mirror, foreshadowing her own rise to fame. I hate the ending. Do you really? It's so pat right it's just exactly what you'd expect oh i think yeah i think that's why it's good i don't know this is something i've thought a lot about since i've seen the film because i'm on record everywhere in this podcast saying i like tight narrative and that would point itself you know make every sign that this is a tight narrative that you know the who song at the end right won't get fooled again meet the new boss same as the old boss kind of the cyclical nature mm-hmm. of something yeah, it's the eternal return yeah but I didn't like it. I thought it was so obvious. And I think a full minute before, I was like, she's going to pick up a dress and do the exact same thing Eve did. <laughs> and it wasn't a dress. It was an overcoat. But I mean, yeah. come on. I don't know. Something about that I really didn't like. I mean, I, I guess it's thematically appropriate, perhaps, it's, if we yeah, think about... It's, it's what Eve deserves, right? I I suppose so. But at the same time, yeah. So Eve's super manipulative, right? I think that's clear in the plot synopsis. I think it's clear in the viewing. But Margot's not really a nice person. No, Margot's not great either. And what does Eve actually take from Margot? Like what like let's let's uh let's write down all of her infractions. Let's get ready to take her to court. Oh jeez. What do you yeah. what do you get her on? Well, she takes the role 
from her. Although Margot kind of doesn't want the role at a point. but That's she's why Karen laughs, right? Because Margot actually doesn't want the role. And so Eve is free to step in, even though that was Eve's machination to blackmail Karen. But Karen did that of her own accord originally. So Eve is, she's playing the field, certainly. But what has she done wrong, exactly? Well, she does try to take the respective men from Margot and Karen. She tries pretty hard. Sure. Well, maybe not pretty hard, right? Because she accosts Bill, and Bill's like, nah. Just write it up as an incomplete forward pass, I think is what he says. Yes. And that's it. She never tries to accost Bill again, right? Mm, that we know of. I know, but I'm, we, we can only go off the film what we see, right? right. I don't think yeah, there's any she, indication. But, that, but, I mean, she immediately turns to Karen's husband. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. She definitely supplants Birdie. She's a, a busybody, gets herself, uh, get, puts her nose into business that's not really hers. But does she doesn't does she do anything wrong? I, I think maybe that's part of her, her evil genius is that she never does anything wrong really that overtly wrong the worst you can hold her for is infidelity the thing about the brewery and she clearly slept with the boss and the boss's wife ran her a town basically mm-hmm. something she tries to do with both other main characters husbands yeah but i think the worst thing you could hold her for is like well she's two-faced right she pretends it's one way and then acts the opposite way but yeah. that's a moral failing but not a legal one and so we don't sure. like her certainly but it's not as if she stole the award from margot right she's clearly a better actress and a younger actress than margot is is she better though she's just younger well we hear from the other characters at her audition which we never see which i think is a good idea because you'd actually have to force the audience to compare acting ability but right that and, all happens and off who's screen, better than betty davis right Right. So we don't see it. We're told she's phenomenal, right? Yeah. And Margot definitely feels surpassed in that way. So that's fair, right? That's talent. Yeah. So I think the difficulty I'm having is that, like, Eve is the villain. Yeah. But it's not as if everyone else is glowing in the film. Yeah. And and I think I think what the film is trying to highlight is that she does all these things th- not through the normal channels, right? It's not necessarily done solely by the merits of her work. She has to lie uh, and weasel her way in to this world, which admittedly is really kind of how that sort of thing is done. Right. That was going to be my response to you is that you get Marilyn Monroe, right? A young Marilyn Monroe, Miss Caswell in the film, how she is trying to navigate and it's very heavily implied that their sexual favors being exchanged yeah, to try to get yeah. her these auditions and readings and things like that. So it's very much the way things are. And I mean, DeWitt is probably the most despicable character because he recognizes the seediness of theater and by extension Hollywood and is trying to make his own advantage in that. And he's our first narrator in the film. And I yeah. immediately was like, I hate this guy. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely not a good person. Um, but I think that maybe the prop, maybe what the film is trying to highlight here, what it's, what it, what it wants to do, right, is to show that Eve is is two faced, right? That is, I guess, her sin that she on the on the outside appears to be demure and sweet and you know all of these things, but in reality is as cutthroat as Margot and the others, right? 
And mm-hmm. I, so I think maybe that's what it's trying to guide us towards is that being two-faced is bad, but I nobody don't, else I don't is really so good because either. Because really what it is is I think it's just demonstrating the nature of that environment, right? It's saying this is theater and this is burgeoning Hollywood, right? It's these kinds of characters, these kinds of people that make that a possibility. Well, and but even even acting, I mean, this becomes a sort of meta argument, right? Is that even acting is is two-faced, right? These are mm-hmm. all actors playing actors playing parts, right? So even within that, there there is the sort of built-in untruthfulness to watching anything in Hollywood or or te- or television or the, or the theater or anything, right? Because it's all people lying and pretending to be other people. Uh, so then Eve becomes the villain because she's lying and pretending to be somebody she's not so that she can get a job to lie and pretend that she's someone she's not. And she's surrounded by, and people are upset around her that she's lying and pretending to be someone that she's not, even though many of them make their livings from lying and pretending to be someone they're not or writing the lines for people to lie and pretend to be someone they're not, right? So it's, yeah, it's not quite as simple maybe. Yeah, it's it's complicated. Right, and I think DeWitt points to this when they're all sitting on the stairs at Bill's party and he says the actor is like the original displaced personality. Mm-hmm. because you're never yourself. Margot talks about it when they're broken down in the car that Karen has caused to break down. Well, I mean, not really break. They took the gas out of it, right? Yeah. And they're sitting there, and she's saying, Bill loves Margot Channing, but I'm not going to be Margot Channing in 10 years. Right. Because she's just herself. There's this displacement, this disassociation between who she is as a person and the persona, right? The paramour, the idea of that. Right. So I I think I see this film as clearly a meta commentary on itself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think the pivotal scene that I point to with this happens pretty early on. Actually, it's Bill, which my subtitles kept saying Simpson, but they kept pronouncing it Samson. Oh. So I'm not really sure which way that's supposed to be said. Oh, but let's say Bill Samson because the way they were saying in the film. Yeah, I wonder what the internet says. It's when he's unloading on Eve very early in the dressing room and he tells her this is what theater is so he goes on a bit of a tirade so let's go ahead and take a listen yeah so you're going to hollywood Mm-hmm. why i just wondered just wondered what why why what why you have to go out there i don't have to i want to is it the money Eighty percent of it will go for taxes. And why? Why, if you're the best and most successful young director in the theater? The theater, the theater. What book of rules says the theater exists only within some ugly buildings crowded into one square mile of New York City? Go to London, Paris, or Vienna. Listen, Junior, and learn. You want to know what the theater is? A flea circus. Also opera. Also, rodeos, carnivals, ballets, Indian tribal dances, Punch and Judy, a one-man band, all theater. Wherever there's magic and make-believe and an audience, there's theater. Donald Duck, Ibsen and the Lone Ranger, Sarah Bernhardt and Poodles Hannaford, Lutton Fontan, Betty Grable, Rex the Wild Horse, Eleanor Aduze, all theater. You don't understand them. You don't like them all. Why should you? The theater's for everybody, you included, but not exclusively. 
So don't approve or disapprove. May not be your theater, but it's theater for somebody somewhere. I just asked a simple question. Okay, so the reason I chose this scene is that we get this interesting time between theater and Hollywood, right? Great. The locus of power is still in New York in the theater, but people are starting to migrate west to Hollywood. You have Bill going out there to make a movie. Then you have Marilyn Monroe's character leaving to go do television over there. And at the end, you have Eve going out to Hollywood as well. Right. With, I think, arguably an implication that she's going to be there to stay. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. So I think the implication is everything that is seedy, manipulative, two-faced, Janice, whatever, about theater is true of Hollywood, right? We are, we are seeing, we're sowing the seeds of Hollywood with theater. Yeah, and I think that they the the characters want to make a distinction as though Hollywood is beneath them and, and the theater is great, but it but it is a continue it's just a continuation of the same thing, right? We as the audience can see that. Yeah, well, and Bill sees that too, right? That's yes. his whole monologue is that it's all theater, right? This television show, Betty Grable, he talks about the Lone Ranger, and then I he doesn't make the explicit comparison to like Shakespeare or something, but he says the theater is all this, right? It's all theater. Right. It's, it's for everybody. It's audience, for you. Yeah. yeah. It's not exclusively for you, but it's for everybody. So it's this it is its own two faced organism, right? Because it is both William Shakespeare and the Lone Ranger, right? It is opposite sides of the fence or, you know, different categories that are all the same machine just wearing different masks. Right, and as I'm always want to point out, Shakespeare that everybody lauds as the greatest writer in the in, in the English language, blah blah blah. I mean Shakespeare is is nothing more than I mean Shakespeare's writing the Marvel movies of his day with you know, they're full of dick jokes, sex jokes and and big fights. You know, Shake so much of what Shakespeare writes is is and is entertainment. He's writing to make money. It's yeah, but at the same time I would disagree because there's so much stuff packed into it that'd be like if the marvel movies referenced like joyce and beckett and things like that where true i mean i think there is more to it that's that's perhaps an unfair comparison but uh shakespeare is perhaps also not at least in his time period is not the master of language that that we see him today right he wrote to make money uh and and he did lots of groundbreaking and wonderful things uh, but, you know, there is a way to read and see Shakespeare as not the, you know, the, the bard of the English language. Sure. But returning to All About Eve, I have a question for you, Ethan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why do you think this film was put on the list? Uh, because I think it's it's a it's a wonderful meta commentary and it is a it's a wild ride in a lot of and, and it is I think it is a well-made movie in in a lot of ways. I tend to agree with the meta commentary. I think a lot of the reason why it's here is because it is talking about the stage and screen to people deciding about what goes on the list for the screen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think it gives itself a lot of credit for that. So my thesis for this film is actually, well, I mean, really, besides everything else, this is really just a play on film. So yeah, they're yeah, talking yeah. about the theater. This is staged very much like a play. It's yeah. fixed camera with different like interior shots. Everyone's kind of melodramatic. So it's, it really does feel like a play on film. Yeah. So they're going to blur the lines yet again with it. 
and it's made exceptional for its meta commentary on the theater and Hollywood, which we've already discussed. Yeah. It's melodramatic and often heavy handed. Yes, but definitely. it's stark, and that's why it's on the list. I think the starkness, right, the ability for it to illustrate so cleanly what's going on. People are speaking very philosophically about the ideas of the theater, the ideas of the actor, the ideas of displaced personality. Yeah, I think because it's so clear, or it enunciates or articulates that so clearly, I think that really helps its case. Yeah, no, I'm I'm 100% on board with you. Uh in in that respect i think that that's absolutely what's going on i think also there's there is something to be said about its very open attitude towards aging female aging i think that that's something that quite often in film and television right either is is some sort of joke uh or is you know sort of swept under the rug right um and and they quite often talk about how you know Margot is playing 17 year old characters and she's almost and she's 40 right like mm-hmm. and and she sees her end and and I think that even that becomes its own commentary on theater and film right that the the aging I mean people are always sounding the death knell of the theater they've been doing it for uh, several hundred years they will continue to do it um and so in many ways Margot becomes a stand-in for the stage right whereas uh uh, Eve herself is either a transitory figure uh, or or heralds the you know the age of the screen right, which is mm-hmm. in in the fifties, late forties, you know, into the early fifties is becoming more important, I think, in a lot of ways than than the theater, or maybe not more important than the theater, but uh, but is becoming its own independent. It's 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 growing up, right? It's no longer just sort of an infant medium it is something that is a pillar with with the theater right well it becomes the dominant media yeah 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 and we're seeing that with the transition with bill going to hollywood to make a movie yes with eve going and saying maybe i'll come back maybe i won't there's this transition happening right i think that's also why it's important but you mentioned female aging i mean this is for betty davis also right she's sort of the archetypical aging actress at this point yeah and i was looking at some of the trivia and the actress who played karen had said something to Betty Davis, like, oh, good morning. And Betty Davis was like, oh, shit, you've got manners. This is going to be hell or something like that. <laughs> and she's like, I never spoke to her again. So apparently she was a bit of a diva on set as well. So she's she's very Margot-like in some regards, reportedly. Yeah, I, I think that that's some of the, the titillating uh, excitement of this film, right, is that Betty Davis seems to be playing a character not dissimilar from herself. But maybe in a different way as well. This film is also incredibly feminist. Yeah, yeah. I think every scene has a female character, and they are certainly our protagonists. We are closer to inhabiting their minds than the male characters. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know if this film would pass the Bechdel test, but I thought a lot about that while watching it, and I think that... If I mean it, again, I don't know that it necessarily would pass, but I think it would get considerably closer than many of the other films we've seen on this list. And this is 1950, which is pretty surprising. I think it actually does pass the Bechdel test, right? There are women together talking about something other than a man. They're talking about other women, right? They're true, yeah, and their careers. Mm-hmm, yeah, and sometimes those issues do relate to the men, but even in those cases, I would argue that they are framed in regard to their own subjectivity and not dependent upon the man's subjectivity. Yeah. 
Bill disappears for like eight scenes and no one cares, right? True. Well, Bill and uh, what's what's the other man's name? Lloyd or Richard? Yeah. What well, I mean, they are essentially interchangeable. <laughs> um, they're not important, right? They they themselves aren't actors. None of the men are are actors, right? Uh, right. You get the playwright, you get the director, and you've got the financier, basically. Right, and we and and the critic, right? And we. Uh, oh yeah, and the critic. And the film sort of starts with their voice, but they make a point about how the most important person is is the is the actor, the actress, right? It's all about Eve. It is. It is all about Eve, right? They. It's, I think it's in that very first monologue that you know that all the other people are there to shine the light and beatify the the actress right and eve takes home that you know that award that is like a crown uh that she holds like a crown you know yeah so yeah he said i think it's about time for us to talk about our three questions i think so before that let's talk about anchor yeah okay so first question ethan yes what do we owe to this film well i i think that you know this is this is a film where if you look at the uh wikipedia page you've got their you know in popular culture section and it's this one is quite extensive this idea of the uh the younger sort of mousy or impoverished person that comes in usurper the you see the usurper right absolutely right like and this they come in and then become the person that they they ostensibly are there to help and i think that that story gets told over and over and over again because it's it's great right eve eve is appears beautiful and wonderful and nice and is conniving and and ruthless and all these things and she wants to become Margot, right she and she does uh or or even perhaps eclipses her and i think that that's that's a story that is really compelling and that is is really interesting to tell over and over and i think it gets done in all sorts of things in petty ways in on television in just little arcs uh and and perhaps in lots of other media as well yeah we see it a lot and i was actually trying to think about it today i can't remember the film's name i saw commercials for it a couple years ago it was it was this exact same plot right younger woman comes into an older woman's life and tries to take everything from her right because she is obsessed with that woman it also means taking her husband or whomever love interest she has, um, imitating and replicating all aspects of her life. Yeah. And we see this a lot. And I think it is a very powerful thing when it's done well. I don't think it's been done exceptionally well in other places, but you do see it. It's become its own trope in its own right. Yeah, and I think it's something about, like you were mentioning, the young, beautiful woman, right? Someone who's supposed to think is well off or she's supposed to have good character right sort of the old-fashioned shorthand this is a good character because she's pretty right this is mm-hmm. a bad character because she's ugly but we have someone who is supposed to read in that old-fashioned sense as a good character really be the force of evil in the film yeah and i think that's that's so recognizable and like you say it's across all all kinds of, of media television film book whatever yeah i think we're compelled by it i also think on top of these things we have to again just account for the fact that this representing or really depicting a shift between theater and film yeah and is very conscious of itself as a play on film Mm -hmm. as a mixed media in that way in that it is 
becoming a film. It is a film. It's 1950, but at the same time, this was a play. It's built off the play, and here's how it's, you know, showing its colors in, in both those regards. Mm-hmm. And I think the pivotal scene we talked about with Bill illustrates that theater is ubiquitous. And I think also we are seeing the kind of seedy underbelly of both of those professions. Mm-hmm. So how about we go to our second question? Yeah. Does this film hold up? You know, I, I think in a lot of ways it does. I think that that narrative is just, it's very compelling. Um, perhaps, the, I mean, as you've pointed out, the cinematography is very straightforward. It is very much like a film. It's staged as if it is a play. They're not doing a whole lot of very exciting things a lot of these sort of three-quarter shots uh that look like a play and and all that but i think that the the script uh and and the performances and the plot still feel quite modern um surprisingly so in places i think its ideas are modern i think the performances are a bit melodramatic which is not something you typically see outside of like the soap operas and the daytime TV. Uh, true, yeah. I think yeah, I I think you're right. But beyond that, I thought the film was just far too long. Really? I I thought it was maybe a little too long, but not that too long. And and the reveal of of Eve as that that like slow burn that she, something's not right, something's not right and then oh, she's actively trying to undermine some of these people. I thought that that was, was well done. But maybe if it was about 30 minutes shorter, it, it might hold up a little better. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I thought the way they were piecing out the reveal of Eve, I thought well before they were ready to admit to Eve being two-faced that I was already like, no, she's already done this. There's no way this could be interpreted as anything else than bad, right? So... I was kind of like in suspense the way the film wants you to be. Not that it's necessarily suspenseful, but right. I wasn't I wasn't suspending my disbelief perhaps about her potentially being good. I think it it was it kind of put itself into a corner really quickly and then maybe, yeah, if it had been shorter that would have alleviated that issue. But I think its length is also symptomatic of that transitory state between play and film that it depicts and that it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because plays it's got are around acts, right. Yeah, and plays around that two-hour, two-hour-and-a-half mark. Yeah. And I think if it were just an hour and a half, 90 minutes, I feel like it would be paced better for a film. And so it was a little bit of a struggle to stay in it because I thought we're just getting more examples of Eve being duplicitous, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. as if all of those added back up at the end. So I thought some of those little little paths could have been cut off and it made a more more tight film for that runtime. Fair. I think that's a fair critique. So our final question, Nathan, is do we care about this? I think, yeah, I think so. I think that it's uh, it's nature as something that is, it is both transitory and commenting on it, the transitory period and moment that it's in. It's got a self-awareness, I think, that is, that is important and interesting. Um, and I think that it does this particular kind of story pretty damn well. And I was very entertained and, and can see a lot of its sort of vines creeping out into the ether into the into other things we've yeah so i think i do i think i do care about this yeah i have to agree with you even though i have mentioned often this episode about things i didn't like about this i don't like the ending i don't like some of the pacing but i think we have to care about it because of all that we've spoken about about that transition between theater and film 
Hollywood, New York, and how that is both depicted and commented on, mm-hmm. and that that commentary is meta-commentary as well, right? It's not as if they are talking about something that happened 50 years ago to see how it changed. They are in the right. moment that it's happening, and they are a play that is filmed talking about the transition between plays and film. So it is really cutting edge in that way, right? Yeah. It's not a period yeah. piece in that in that regard. So I do think we have to care about it. I think it's really neat. I think I have some things that would have helped it stand up better today. But then again, that's Monday morning quarterbacking, right? <laughs> yeah. So that'll do it for us this episode, Ethan. It will. We'll be back in two weeks on the AFI Top 100 with number 27 on the list, which is 1952's High Noon. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? I have not. But it sounds, it, like it sounds like a cowboy movie. It sure does. So until then, <laughs> I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. There will be spoilers, Matt. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.